Well, if you take your bulletins and you'd open them up, I put a psalm in there today, Psalm 73. It's a psalm that's written by David's worship leader, whose name was Asaph. And uh, I'd want us to see, just for a few minutes, what worship will do for us if we devote ourselves to it. So, look at Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to the upright. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. Now here's right now is where the plight of the psalmist comes in. Here, here's why he had almost slipped and stumbled. Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, Dallas Willard. In fact, if the biggest lesson I learned this summer, Dallas Willard died. He wrote the book called The Divine Conspiracy. He's written Listening to God, several other books. But uh, at his funeral, they told the story. He's a professor at USC. And the student was talking to him and uh, in the class really putting down some of the thoughts that Willard had and, and uh, was, was pontificating on certain things that all the rest of the class knew was totally off base and wrong. And so... Uh, Dr. Willard listened, listened, and as soon as the kid had finished, he said, you know, I think that's a good place for us to stop today. And after class, about a dozen students come up and they go, what did you do? You could have blown that kid out of the water. Why didn't you tell him how off base he was and stuff like that? And Dallas Willard said, I am intentionally practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. And that is my biggest lesson from this summer. Because I'll tell you what, I do want to have the last word. And I have found myself just trying to keep my mouth shut and allow God to work. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. You, he'll speak to you, you know. And uh, I, I don't always have to have that last word. But Dallas Willard, he has an interesting twist on Psalm 73. He asked this question, have you had an envy-free week this past week? The thought of being jealous of another person never entered your mind. It never occurred to you to say, I wish I had that person's job or status or marriage or personality. I wish I had their waistline or hairline or their bottom line. Your greatest rival got a promotion, lost 25 pounds, looks great, married a supermodel who turned neurosurgeon, and your only response was, oh, I'm so happy for you. (laughs) Did you have an envy-free week? How about pride, he says. Did you find all your thoughts this week just went automatically to humility and servanthood? No thoughts of selfish ambition or arrogance. No attempts to manipulate or to control others. No self-serving statements. No impression management going on. Did you have a pride-free week of humility and self-denial and you're just feeling great about yourself right now? Well, we all know that in our world, usually our thoughts don't produce those kinds of, of, uh, or our minds don't produce those kinds of thoughts. I think some of you came to church today, maybe you've got a problem that you can't solve. Maybe you came with a knot in your stomach and, and you're just hoping beyond hope that there might be some truth to the fact that maybe with God all things are possible. Maybe you remember that when the Apostle Paul was in prison that, that he wrote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. 
Perhaps if God could deliver David from the lion's den or David from Goliath or Elijah from Jezebel, maybe, just maybe, that God could deliver you from whatever situation you're in. And by the way, that's why we worship God. To magnify Him. So that we can remember how big He is. Perhaps there's a part of your heart right now that's just real hard or cold. You're involved in a sin and you refuse to allow God's Spirit to convict you of it. And God or maybe is calling you to serve in some area. And you've just said, no, God, I'm not going to do it. I'm withdrawing myself from you. And that's another reason why we worship God. So that our hearts will get soft again. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but I can become pretty stubborn clay sometimes. And I want to remind you that we worship God solely because He's worthy of our worship. We don't worship to get something out of it, but because He is so good. And when we do worship Him, something happens to us. Our hearts get full of joy. We get grateful for what we have. We get filled with confidence because we're reminded again that with God all things are possible. And then we surrender our spirits and we want to avoid sin. And then we're humbled by God's greatness. And then we genuinely want to share our faith with those who are far from God. And then we're filled with hope. But I'll tell you what happens when we don't worship with all of our minds and hearts and strength. I don't know, maybe this doesn't happen for you, but I can become anxious about tomorrow. I envy what other people have. I develop a sense of entitlement that says, you know, I ought to have that, and then it chokes off my gratitude. I become negative and judgmental towards other people. And I get discouraged and then easily defeated with setbacks. And that's what happens to a non-worshipping mind. So what kind of mind do you want to have? What kind of life would you like to have? Look at verse 4. Asaph says, For they have no pain and their bodies are sound and sleek. In other words, they're the beautiful people. They're the type of people that they put on magazine covers. Verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not plagued like other people. Now he, he says, you know, they don't have, seem to have financial problems. They defy God, but their, but their careers are flourishing. They vacation wherever they want to. They live the good life. And the psalmist is saying, I don't get it. Verse 6a, their pride, therefore pride is their necklace. He says they don't bury their pride in their hearts. They flaunt it like some people wear jewelry. The rest of verse 6, violent covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut through the earth. Asaph says, you know what? They are opposed to God, but somehow life is turning out just the way they want it. And not just that, verse 10, therefore the people turn and praise them and they find no fault in them. He said, instead of being the objects of moral judgment, those people are praised. They're the ones that get looked up to. They know how to live. They're the ones who write the books that we read. And and people find no fault with them. And worse than that, he says, they openly mock God. Look at verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? No, I don't have to be accountable to God. I don't have to follow His Word for my life. The psalmist just can't figure out why... Why, God doesn't do anything about this. And if that isn't bad enough, that they're doing so well, he goes on to say what makes it worse is I'm trying hard to be righteous and it's not paying off. I'm in worse shape than they are. 
Look at verse 12. Such are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And then look what he says about himself in verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and I'm chastised every morning. Now listen, we don't know what the plague was that, that Asaph looks at here. I mean, when he looks at their lives and, and their defiance against God, and he just it fears like it appears to him that, that God just isn't doing anything. And then he looks on the other side of the scale. I'm just putting my own words in here. I go to church, I read my Bible, I tithe my salary, I avoid gross sins. But where's the payoff? What good is it doing? I don't know if you ever have thoughts like this. And he realizes that this is going to destroy him. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will talk on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. Notice the importance of community here. He's talking here about the sense of loyalty to the community of Israel. That's the only thing that's keeping him in the game right now. Is that accountability with, with other brothers and sisters. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He says, I'm powerless. It just makes no sense to me. I mean, I'm hanging on to my spiritual integrity with a thread. And maybe some of you are doing that this morning too. On the one hand, if he gives in to the cynicism, he's going to betray everything that has meaning for him, and he's going to betray God. And on the other hand, he looks at the unfairness of life and his unhappiness that's driven him to the brink of despair. And he's confused, and he's discouraged, and he's bitter, and he's envious, and he's unhappy, and he's far from God, and he's double-minded, and he's tempted, and he's exhausted, and he just can't make any sense about it. But then, here comes the turning point in the whole psalm. In fact, if you have a pen, this is the one word to circle today, until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, he says, until I practice again the discipline of assembling with God's people, even though there wasn't a happy bone in my body, it wasn't until I consciously entered into the presence of God and I encountered His goodness and I devoted myself to worship, even though I didn't feel like it, it's then that my thoughts turned around 180 degrees. And the way that I looked at the world and the way that I looked at myself just kind of flipped upside down. And in worship, finally, God gave me a sane mind. And worship gave him three things. First, look at the perspective in verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes, and awaking you despise their phantoms. What he realized when he went into worship and when he entered the sanctuary was that there is more to reality than just the stuff that he could see or hear. In the words of Dallas Willard, he remembered when he came to worship that today's assets are not the final word. He remembered that every human being is just a heartbeat away from giving an account of their life to an utterly just God. And by the way, that's why we're so committed to evangelism around here. Do you realize that your friends and your relatives and your co-workers are in slippery places? The psalmist says, it was in worship that my eyes were open, and it's kind of like the lights came on. And I saw that people that I envied were to be the most pitied and the most reached out to. Not only did worship give me a new perspective, he says, but I'm able to now diagnose the condition in my own heart. Look at verse 21. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward you. You know, he had thought he was so righteous. But he's living in a nonstop mode of breaking the Tenth Commandment. He'd given in to bitterness and envy and self-righteousness and judgmentalism. Do you think that ever leads to satisfaction? Or to fulfillment? Or to joy? That just leads to pain and regret. And yet the psalmist says, I gave in to that time and time and time again. He was like a Pavlovian dog until, until, he says, I entered the sanctuary. And then I practiced the discipline of worship. And then I remembered, I don't want to live like that. And then this wonderful truth in worship, he experienced the truth that he's not alone. Asaph says, here's the truth about me. I was embittered. I was pricked in heart. I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward God. I was on a path toward self-destruction. Verse 23, nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And now his heart is so overwhelmed with the love of God that now he begins to talk to God directly. He says, you hold my right hand. I mean, friends, can you think about walking through this week with God holding your hand? Like a child whose parent is holding their hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. In other words, you keep me from making stupid mistakes. And afterwards you will receive me with honor. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire other than you. The idea here is that he doesn't want to have anything in his life that God doesn't want in his life. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. I may never be one of the rich, beautiful people. But God is the strength of my heart, and he's my portion forever. Verse 27, indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. In other words, he's saying, God, I see it clearly now. Coming into worship, I get the right perspective. Now, verse 28, but for me, but for me, but for me, it is good to be near God. I made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. You know, you can almost hear the psalmist saying, what if I hadn't gone to the sanctuary? What if I had avoided worship? What if I had neglected to gather with other believers? I would have gone on in bitterness and envy. I would have made stupid decisions. I would have had an ungrateful heart. I would have been set up for sinful behavior. I probably would have spoken toxic words. I would have lived blind to the reality of God. I could have thrown my whole life away. Thank God for the sanctuary. Thank God for the discipline of worship. And I think that every one of us could some way affirm that. I think there's probably been a time in your life when you've been on a Psalm 73 path. You would have made a wrong decision. You would have continued in sin. You might have wallowed in self-pity. But when you entered the sanctuary, when you practiced the discipline of worship, and you encountered God... You just recalibrated your life. You know how it happens when you make a wrong turn? Recalibrating, says the GPS system. Recalibrating. And when you come to worship, you recalibrate. Thank God for worship. And part of worship is going to be coming to this table in just a minute. And part of worship is what we do. You know, worship isn't just singing. Worship is, it has a lot more to do with that. But that's part of our worship. And so I just don't want us to be casual about it. And I, I just, 
Now I want to say that if I was writing the book of Revelation and I was giving a, a word to the church at Water's Edge, I would encourage you that church doesn't start at 945. Our worship starts at 930. And especially when we have numerous visitors who come in here and they're the only ones sitting here at 930 because our members are not here. We have a corporate witness in worship. And there is something about our worship that when other people see us worship, maybe there is something missing in my life. (laughs) But when we just stand there and don't participate in our worship, maybe there isn't the reality. And so I just don't want us to be casual about that. So let's pray together and then let's spend a little time worshiping God and we'll come to the table. Father, some of us, me included, have been lazy and complacent and negligent in our worship. We've been running so fast that we haven't stopped to say thank you. And we want our hearts to be filled with thanksgiving and praise for the great things that you've done for us. You are worthy of all praise. And your protocol is to enter your presence with thanksgiving. And so we come with thankful and expectant hearts. And like the psalmist, may we say, But for me, it is good to be near you, and we have made you our refuge, and we will tell others of your good works. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen, there's different postures to worship. You can be on your knees, you can lay prostrate, you could, you know, uh, you could raise your hands, you could stand up. Uh, We don't, I'm not, I never want to say to people, this is how you have to worship. But I wonder if you would join me in standing, just like when the president walks into a room, just when later today when I perform a wedding, the bride's going to come down the aisle and everybody will stand. We're in the presence of God, so let's out of respect stand as we worship him.